Welcome to episode 158. Today, we look at the science of reading and its implementation in the classroom. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. The discussion around phonics instruction and decoding and fluency versus balanced literacy is a spirited one. These arguments are often based on teachers' emotions, their perspectives, or how they've taught reading or have experience in reading instruction in the past. Sometimes these discussions are based on research. In this conversation, Chris Such makes the research around reading instruction clear and easy to implement for teachers. Though it's a primary school setting, the principles of reading instruction can be applied to students learning to read in English in any grade. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to welcome a colleague across the pond, Christopher Such, who has written the book called The Art and science of teaching primary reading. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Tell us where, um, how you spend your day and where you spend most of your days. Uh, good question. So until January or till December just gone, I would have spent all of my time, all of my working time in a school down the road i'm from england so it would have been a, it's a school in peterborough in england where i'm from and and i would have i was a curriculum leader senior leader supporting teachers with their professional development and uh, making sure that the curriculum was fit for purpose uh, and very recently in january i started working um uh, two jobs effectively one of them as uh, part of the learning design team at ambition institute um, helping to design national qualifications uh, in particular the national professional qualification for leading literacy uh, which is being rolled out across the country for um, as i say for ambition which is the largest provider of professional development in in the country and um, alongside, I work for them part-time. It's a wonderful organization to work for, but I work for them part-time so that I can do um, reading consultancy and curriculum consultancy with schools, initial teacher training providers, and multi-academy trusts, again, from across the country. So a lot of the time I'm working from home, but other times I am kind of dotting around the country to work with schools and to work with um, other other groups and other organizations. So it's, it's a real, I'm um, very lucky to do what I do. I absolutely love it. Well, as you're dotting around the country, I think you're going to be jet setting internationally as well, because my friend in Malaysia uh, tweeted out your book, and then I went to go look at it, and there were 271 reviews, positive reviews, on just Amazon UK alone. And that does include America. And I was like, wow, this is great. And so, um, 
I'm surprised that you picked a very, uh, not, I wouldn't say divisive, but a quite um, highly opinionated topic of the science of reading. So we'll get there in the future. But can you talk to us about a story that has influenced your practice? Yes. Yeah, so um, I was, before I became a, a school leader, I was a teacher in primary schools across the age ranges. So year four, sorry, four-year-olds up to 11-year-olds for um, 10, 11 years. And I would say the a central story that kind of influenced my practice was that when I was about in the seventh or eighth year of my teaching career, I was given the opportunity to work with a group of students who were those that were struggling most from um, year five. So these are kind of nine, 10 year olds. And it, this was a school that had um, 80 students in each year group, um, or actually, sorry, 90 students, I should say, in each year group. So three classes of 30. And these were the students, kind of the 20 students from that class of 30, sorry, from that year group of 90, I should say, who were struggling the most with reading and with writing and with mathematics. And being able to work just with those students and being able to focus in particular on the barriers they had to learning, just it revealed a few things to me about the learning process that um, I sort of knew in the background, but I was able to really focus upon with these kids. In particular, it's the idea that often pupils who seem like they struggle a great deal, like they're very far behind with their learning relative to their peers, what's missing there in terms of their knowledge, in terms of their skills, can often be supported and with relatively small changes. So for example, I was able to, we, I, I took the maths curriculum, for example, and stripped out about 20% of the stuff that I thought, you know what, that can wait. Stuff relating to area and shape and um, measures and data handling, that kind of thing, and just focused mainly on the 80% of the curriculum that's to do with number and fractions and this sort of thing. And the progress that these pupils made was astonishing. You often think, in the short version of this though, is that we often think that these pupils that really struggle are need massive di differences, massive interventions. And what I found was that what they really needed was about 20 to 30% more time to learn something than their peers. You give them that time and they learn as capably as anyone else. So um, the, the thing I learned about working with these pupils at heart was that sometimes relatively small changes and being able to target particular needs with groups of students can be transformative. You can make small changes over a relatively long period of time and you can completely alter the way that pupils interact with their learning. Um, so yeah, if I had to pick one story that kind of defined my attitude to teaching, it would probably be that. Um, when you talked about that, I thought about the Pareto principle. 80% of your results can be directly tied to 20% of your actions, right? Mm. So like the fact that you thought about, okay, what am I gonna be able to change like let's prioritize on this part of the curriculum and that's going to have massive uh, difference in the student le students learning because I'm focusing. It's like when you say yes to something, you say no to other things. Yeah, absolutely. I would say in particular, being able to target, I mean, thinking about the, 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 the this Pareto principle, being able to say, well, what is the 20% that has this 80% impact? I know this is a very rough guide, but it is a useful um 
it's a useful heuristic i think for teachers and anyone and in terms of mathematics that 20 percent is things like um the, the basic mental arithmetic relating to addition subtraction multiplication and division um, an understanding of place value making sure that every student left the year capable in those areas made a massive difference to their the, the, their ability to grasp everything else and their confidence in learning everything else in terms of reading it's the same thing but relating to um, word recognition and fluency making an effort to say look i'm going to target those things and i want to see what are the ripple effects about targeting those things across the rest of their learning and again small sample size so it's this is just an anecdote it's not data but at the same time it did seem to me that there were surprisingly significant results to targeting the right things right. less is more have you heard about that story that um about so this guy goes to a, a big like a manufacturing company and there's a machine there's a machine that like produces all the, all the products for that company the guy, the manager goes like, listen, we need you to fix, figure out what, what to do. He goes in and the mechanic goes and looks and he's an expert. And he figures out this, this one part of the machine and changes the skew just slightly. And then he writes on an invoice. He's a, he, he, oh, the guy, the manager says, whoa, it's working now. Thanks. So how much do we owe you? He said $10,000. The manager goes, that's crazy. Can we see an itemized invoice, please? He said, sure. He said one dollar, uh, changing of the screw, and then nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine dollars, knowing which screw to turn. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a big part of like teaching, which is that knowing which thing to do. And there's so much of um, uh, like the bits and pieces of advice that I get to give to schools, where I have to preface what I say by saying this is going to seem quite obvious or almost mundane but i bet it's something that you've overlooked and quite often it is that is that is the case and sometimes it's it's, it's nothing special it's just something you've learned from experience and being fortunate enough to have certain opportunities to learn things let's move now to talking about reading you've you've actually identified that several times tell me about the seed of this book chris Okay, so um, I mentioned earlier that I've had the opportunity to work with initial teacher training providers. So effectively, teachers that are brand new to the profession or training, I, sh I should say, to be part of the profession. And um, I worked with these training providers looking at mathematics and primary mathematics and primary reading. And when it came to primary mathematics, when the um, initial teacher trainees said to me, can you recommend a book that's going to help me understand this subject. When it came to maths, I was able to say, well, there's this wonderful book by Derek Haylock that will support you with your um, subject knowledge development. It will help you understand the basic pedagogy behind teaching the maths curriculum. Check out um, Derek Haylock's work and wonderful. And then uh, these trainees would say to me, okay, the stuff you've talked about reading, like the research behind reading, the principles that can help guide our practice to make sure that we're making sensible decisions what book would you recommend and I drew a blank I looked for stuff online I found wonderful books there are wonderful books out there but they tend to be written by researchers so Language at the Speed of Sight by Mark Seidenberg is a really fascinating book love it but at the same time not particularly accessible for someone brand new to teaching and what I did find I thought this doesn't doesn't quite fit the bill and so i thought well you know what i'll write it i'll have a, i'll have a go at writing something um that 
um, is aimed at, at people who are new to the profession. But what I found as I was writing the book and as I was researching it and as I was talking to colleagues and school leaders was that this was information that was equally valuable to current teachers and if not even more valuable, I dare say, to school leaders and even those working with with older students at secondary school. So, yeah, that was the kind of the seed of the book. It was uh, filling a gap in the market, which I like. I, I think is perhaps why the book's been at least fairly successful. So I think in the future, someone will say, listen, I need a book on uh, teaching reading instruction. They'll say, oh, I have a book just for that. And that's your book. Oh, well, I hope so. That would be lovely if that were the case. Let's talk about your six parts of your book. Um, let's explore some of the chapters. Let's start with talking about understanding reading and its origin and the implications for instruction and learning. Can you uh, make sure to talk about the trouble of, of with English? Yes. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about English is that it seems to be the case that word recognition difficulties are particularly common in countries that where pupils are learning to read in English compared to say reading in German or reading in Spanish, reading in Italian, all sorts of other orthographies. Um, and the central thing was that English is, English has, I should say, what we call a deep orthography. And what this means is that, well, one of the things that a written language often does is that it attempts to um, portray some of the sounds or the sounds of spoken language. Now, not all written languages do this to the same extent as English or other Indo-European languages, but all of them to some extent represent some aspects of spoken sound. And in English, the relationship between the chunks of sound that are being represented, phonemes, and the letters that are representing them, graphemes, is incredibly complicated. So if I give one kind of brief example of that, if we think about the sh sound at the start of the word shop, well, that can be represented by sh, as in the word shop, but it can be represented by ch in a word like chef. It can be considered to be represented by ti in words like nation, etc., etc. And so there is this embedded complexity in our writing system. Now, the question is, I guess, where does that come from? And in order to know where it comes from, we have to think a bit about the, the history of English and the, and the nature of our written language. So this complexity comes about primarily because written English is <clears throat> it's hundreds of years old. And the English spoken language has often changed in its pronunciations over that time. It's added words from a whole variety of languages. And it was, you know, from the very beginning, it had different um, or different uh, languages in are embedded in, into it. And so what we end up with is a spelling system that doesn't quite perfectly match to the writing system. And that makes it difficult to recognize words. So you can argue that that's kind of one of the, the troubles or the difficulties of learning to read in English. So a good example of this history of English and the impact it has is when we look at words like ghost and ghastly, where the g phoneme is represented by the letters gh, by this kind of gh graphing. So the reason this comes about, or at least this is the famous story behind it, is that William Caxton, when he brought the printing press to England, he brought 
um, typesetters from Flanders or modern day Belgium to, to use the uh, printing press. And they brought with them certain spellings of certain words. And in some words, it just stuck, such as ghost and ghastly. So they still have this um, historical accident embedded into their spelling. And there are lots of these little historical accidents. And one more thing on that, it's also worth noting that our writing system doesn't just attempt to portray sound, it also directly portrays meaning. So morphemes, these chunks of, we can think of as chunks of meaning within words, are also portrayed quite directly and clearly within our writing system. So if we look at the words such as walked and hinted, they both have this chunk of meaning, this ED on the end that represents the past tense. But you'll notice that while they're spelled consistently, this ED, they represent different sounds. We say hinted, we don't say walked. And so we keep this, um, these morph the spellings of these morphemes consistent in certain places, even if this makes our spelling system more complex, more complicated in terms of the way that we're representing sound. The short version is that our writing system, our spelling system is really complicated and it makes it really difficult to learn to recognize words. All the multilingual teachers out there are like applauding you because it takes five to seven years for students to develop academic literacy, competency in uh, English. And that's the reason why, because English is such a hard language to learn. Yeah, it's, 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 an, it's an incredible challenge. And uh, yeah, hats off to anyone learn, uh, learning it. Just one thing to note there, one thing that's quite interesting, a bit of research I was reading recently strongly suggests that there are um, some significant advantages to um, bilingualism and multilingualism for pupils. Um, so yeah, it's an area I want to explore uh, more because it's something that sadly I know a bit about, but I'd, I'd love to learn more about. Let's talk about part two, which is about decoding. Can you please talk about uh, your perspective on reading on the reading wars, phonics versus balanced literacy, a whole language? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting area of debate. Um, and it, it's hard to talk about that without unpicking the history of this a little bit, because on the surface, describing something as balanced literacy inherently sounds like quite a sensible compromise position. Uh, and yet there are nuances to this debate. So if we go for a, at least a century and perhaps a little more, there have been debates about how we teach pupils to recognize words. And if we think about how it feels for us as experts to recognize words, we don't really feel necessarily like we are decoding. We don't feel like we're spotting and using the relationships between uh, sound and the way that words are spelt, except perhaps when we come across a word that's particularly unfamiliar. So it's tempting for us to work backwards from that and say, well, what we do as experts doesn't feel like decoding. So we probably don't need to teach pupils to decode. We feel like we're recognizing words as whole units, as if we are working them out from, from context. We're working them out through a sense of prediction. And there is um, an element of truth of that that I will come to, but the real question is, how do you teach this stuff at the very beginning of instruction? So, a phonics advocate would say that at the very beginning of instruction, what you want to teach pupils to do is to 
first and foremost, recognize the correspondences between letters and phonemes, between letters and sounds, and use that to work out what the word is, well, what the word, what the word is, to recognize, to accurately identify the word. What someone who originally would have been called like a whole language advocate would have said, no, that's that's the last resort. We want to be working out things from context. If there are pictures, if we can just skip over it and come back to it later, because decoding is um, not, it doesn't feel like we do that as experts. And over time, research strongly suggested that the phonics position made sense both in terms of basic research that looked at what the brain actually does as we learn to read, but also um, applied research about, you know, comparing different ways of teaching in the classroom. So there's a real decent body of evidence to say at the very beginning of instruction, teaching pupils explicitly these correspondences is um, a sensible idea. So what happened was that whole language advocates changed a little and said, well, let's let's embed a little bit of phonics into what we do. We'll call it balanced literacy and we'll embed a little bit of phonics, but we'll keep all of the other stuff in initial instruction. Now, the issue relating to this and for those people who have worked with older pupils with reading difficulties will know about this inside out. The issue with this is that when pupils, when anyone comes to an unfamiliar word, the first thing that they need to do, the first thing is to use sound spelling correspondences to work out what that word is. And while they might not get the perfect answer to that word, they might not identify it um, absolutely correctly through that first run through, what they, they can then do is think about, well, what is the context? What is the meaning? What might this, oh yeah, I recognize what this word is, but the first port of call is, well, what, what, what are the sound spelling correspondences? And then bringing a sense of meaning into it. And if we teach from the very beginning that pupils need to be recognizing meaning, uh, sorry, using meaning to recognize the word, what happens is that becomes embedded as their way of recognizing words. There's some fascinating research on something called um, set for variability which what uh, this is research that looks at pupils who decode a word, get it not quite right because it's a word that's unfamiliar to them and they've used the wrong correspondences and then they work out what the word might be. So if I give you an example of that, let's say they come across the word um, uh, cafe and they decode that maybe as cafe or cafe. They decode it and then go, oh, hang on a minute. I know the word cafe. And then from that, they work, they learn new correspondences. They learn a bit more about the way that our writing system works. They recognize that the letter E can represent an A sound, particularly in words that we've derived from French. So by attacking the word originally, using sound spelling correspondences, and then bringing an understanding of meaning uh, into it, they learn more about our writing system. They become more expert in uh, recognizing words. And this is how our expertise with words develops. But at the heart of that, the first port of call is let me look at, let me think about sound spelling correspondences or chunks of words that I, I recognize with sound spelling correspondences and then bring my understanding of meaning to bear. So I know that's quite a long, a long winded way. Of, it's a long winded way of saying at the very beginning of instruction, Pupils need to embed this idea that it's an unfamiliar word. I'm using sound spelling correspondences. And then 
I can bring a sense of meaning, a sense of, you know, the, the word in its context to bear in order to understand the word. But at fir the first part of that is using sound spelling correspondences, which is what phonics advocates say is a good idea and what balanced literacy advocates downplay in their instruction. As a person who's learning my sixth language, I'm learning Khmer right now. Um, if someone would just say, here's a book in Kamai, go learn the language by reading this book, by context, I would be in tears, right? And so my first step was to learn uh, social language, like hello, goodbye, thank you, and then learn how, as I'm learning that, I'm learning the, the Kamai script, what the letters mean, and mm -hmm. then I'm able to read like hello, goodbye, and so this is every time I'm reading that, it's developing my literacy skill, my developing my acquisition of Kamai. I remember not doing this when I learned my fifth language, which is Lao, and I just learned to memorize what, what, what the phrases were, but I didn't learn to read. And so I remember like the acquisition was so slow, but when I picked up the Lao script, it was almost like a rocket went off in my, in my acquisition of a language. So this is a sample of one, and yes, Phonics has a place, it has, it's the first place, but that's not the only place. And so the words have to have meaning, but we cannot skip over phonics at all. So the research in the writing, the reading words is correct, that phonics is so important, Chris. Yeah, and I think a really interesting part of this is that one of the, some of the people who kind of push back against phonics kind of build a straw man and say, well, is it, well, you're just doing phonics. And I've not met a, a phonics advocate who says that, and I've certainly not met a teacher who teaches phonics who does that. At the very beginning of instruction, we are still developing people's spoken language capabilities. We're still reading wonderful stories with them. We're still developing their understanding of the world. We are working on all sorts of different components of the larger picture of reading. But the central thing is that when pupils are at the beginning of instruction, in terms of how they recognize unfamiliar words, that first thing they need to do is, OK, let's look at the correspondences between uh, between sound and spelling, because that is um, the first bit. Even when you become a more advanced learner, if you're looking at unfamiliar words, that's the first step. Other things come into play. But if that first step isn't embedded, what you end up with is children who further up the school, uh, maybe when they're 9, 10, 11, they just look at the first couple of letters and they guess the word from context. And that's a pretty successful strategy at first, but as reading becomes more and more complicated, it's, it ends up being a dead end in terms of their reading development for so many pupils. So as someone who's worked with these older children as well as with younger children and can see the kind of the, the wider story of what happens, I appreciate the, the importance of um, a systematic use of phonics um, in early instruction. Yeah, and it's worth noting that all phonics programs that I've worked with and that I've seen, when they are decoding words, they're not just decoding a word and then going, okay, well, let's just move on to something else. The word has meaning. You know, if the word is cup, we're talking about, ah, this is a cup. You know what a cup is. It's all about uh, using phonics to recognize what that word is and then connect it to the meaning that the pupils already have for that word. Um, very occasionally, there are useful assessments that check whether pupils um, decoding capabilities are developing that use words that don't have meaning. So they might use a word like um, FIP or so F-I-P and say, well, what would this word be? 
And this very occasional um, use of assessment is used by those who are antiphonics to say, look, this is what happens in school. We're teaching them nonsense words. That's not what's that's not what's happening. You know, it and, and if it is what's happening anywhere, they have vastly misinterpreted what phonics is and how it works. I mean, I'm as I'm learning Kamai, I know I'm asking my teachers to be like, do not give me fake words. I need to know what word this word means at Kamai and I, I'll learn how to read it, but don't just give me fake words because I know yeah. the research. That doesn't help. I need to attach a meaning to a word that I'm saying so that uh, this is how language is built. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about, um, so you talked about the importance of phonics. Let's talk about the importance of fluency. Yeah, so we often think of, um, we often think of reading in terms of, well, we're going to teach people to decode and then we're going to teach them to comprehend and phonics will kind of take care of the decoding side of things and understanding language, vocabulary, knowledge about the world, knowledge of how texts work, etc. will take care of that other side of things. And we forget about the way that these two things knit together. And we also forget about the experience with language, with written, with the written word that is required to become a fluent reader. The thing about phonics is what it does is it gives pupils access to a little chunk of knowledge, really useful chunk of knowledge and how to use it about our writing system. But the key thing is that kind of kickstarts the process. It isn't the whole thing. It allows pupils to begin reading words, decoding words, working out what they are and what they mean. And there's still this long process of actually practicing that, putting into practice, learning about the wider patterns of our writing system through lots of experience of, um, of decoding. And this is a big part of what builds up fluency. There is a process called orthographic mapping, which is what, um, it's the reason why we don't feel like we are decoding words. Because when we repeatedly decode a word, sometimes as few times as twice, but sometimes more than that, when we repeatedly decode words, we map them. We begin to be able to recognize them automatically and immediately. And in order to read fluently, we need to map lots of words across our language so that we recognize them immediately. So we see how decoding allows us to achieve fluency through lots and lots of practice. But there are other aspects to fluency as well. In order to um, read a passage fluently, we need to have some level of comprehension about it in order to recognize how we're going to, to stress the word or even exactly what word it is we're recognizing. So it might be that the word is read, but it could also be that it's the past tense read. And that will depend on the, the, the context of what we're reading. So there is this sense that there's this relationship between comprehension and fluency. The more that the, the reading flows, the more cognitive resources we have to devote to comprehension, but equally, the better we comprehend, the more that the reading will flow. So there's this lovely kind of virtuous cycle between the development of fluency and the development of comprehension. And mostly we can think of fluency developing as, as happening through experience with the written word, lots of experience of decoding and understanding words in, re in the real context of sentences is really valuable. There's also some research to suggest that we can target fluency directly through things like repeated oral reading, which is where we get a pupil to read a given chunk of text 
um, three or four times aloud and each time aiming to read it with a little bit more fluency. So when I say fluency, this flow of reading, we're, we're aiming for it to sound a bit more fluent. And we recognize that through the words being um, read accurately, um, automatically as well, so the decoding becomes a bit more unconscious, but also crucially, so the reading would have this sense of prosody. So it sounds like a natural spoken voice. So if we teach pupils to read a text two or three or four times so that by the fourth time it sounds a bit more like a natural spoken voice, there does seem to be a sense in which this practice then transfers to other contexts. It's almost as if pupils need to hear reading fluency out of their own mouths in order to recognize how you can start to bring it all together. So there's interesting research on repeated oral reading, but there's also re um, research to suggest that just wide reading, lots of continuous practice, ideally monitored and supported, um, can build reading fluency as well. Perfect. So now you've established why phonics is so important and why fluency is so important. Would you help us paint a picture of what ideal uh, reading instruction would look like? Oh, it's well, ideal is a very um, quite a loaded word, I would say, because there's I, I definitely think that I could go into two schools that are using two different phonics programs and two slightly different approaches to to reading and reading fluency. And I'd perhaps come away from both of them and say they're both doing a good job. You know, so ideal is quite a difficult thing to pin down. What I would say is there are certain principles that reading instruction would need to follow across different settings and different contexts in order for anyone to say, yes, that's very likely to be um, supporting good reading outcomes. So these kind of key principles, I would say, so first and foremost, using a, a, a systematic phonics program across the school. I personally would advocate a form of phonics called systematic synthetic phonics. The, the research for synthetic phonics is um, strongly suggestive rather than as overwhelming as just systematic phonics. It's effectively a form of systematic phonics. So organized phonics where um, you are recognized, you're using sound spelling correspondences in the context of words from the very beginning of instruction. So I would say first things first though, I would be uh, initial word recognition would be taught through some form of systematic phonics. Um, so that'd be the first thing. The second thing I would say is that Spoken language would have to be a real focus and the development of spoken language would have to be a real focus, not just with the youngest pupils, but throughout education. So making sure pupils are doing lots of productive talk, that they are being listened to in that talk and that there are genuine responses to what they say, making sure that we read lots of wonderful, rich texts with pupils from the beginning of their time in school all the way to the end of their time in school. Um, I would also say that in terms of the development of fluency and the development of reading more generally, that children need to experience lots and lots of reading. They need to, sounds like a very basic thing, this quantitative element, but it's so fundamental. Schools and pupils need to be engaging in lots and lots of reading of texts that are chosen for the uh, breadth and um, the value of the content within those texts. Um, I would also say that there needs to be some attention paid to pupils' development of reading for pleasure. Um, 
as but I would say as long as these principles are being followed, so pupils are learning to recognize words, they're developing fluency through text experience, they are learning to enjoy reading, and they're experiencing like a wide variety of interesting texts that also represent um, the, the, the pupils themselves, their, ex their experiences and that of the wider community. I think if you're following those principles, um, you won't be going too far wrong. There are a few other bits and pieces about how we develop uh, language comprehension and we support pupils to build meaning from words. Um, and I suspect we might talk about those um, a little bit down the line. We will. That's your largest section, which is uh, part three. So we'll get to there. But when you talked about your principles of reading instruction, the, those are the principles of language instruction for students who are learning another language. And so uh, when you were saying that, I was applauding. I was like, yes, this is, we are, the things that we're doing in our field is exactly what you're recommending uh, from your perspective in your research. So yay, Chris. Wonderful. Let's move to part three, then the largest part. How can we, which is actually, it's about language comprehension. Can you talk to us about the different elements of comprehension and how to combine them? Sure. Um, well, I'd start by kind of framing this a little bit. I said earlier that um, learning to recognize words is fundamental in, well, in any language, but very um, and something that's quite tricky to do in English. But beyond recognizing words, we also need to be able to build meaning from those words. And so there are lots of um, bodies of interconnected, there are bodies of interconnected knowledge that we have to develop, that we have to accumulate if we are going to be able to, um, to build meaning from words in the way that we would hope to do. I, I guess a really interesting place to start with that is probably vocabulary. So obviously, as we've already talked about, if you can recognize a word, but you don't know what it means, then you're not going to be able to build meaning across a sentence. We can think of vocabulary in two basic ways. We can think about the breadth of vocabulary, how many words we know, but also the depth of vocabulary. What do we know about those words? And so developing a pupil's vocabulary is um, a particularly valuable thing that we need to do. And we can do that explicitly through um, kind of the, the instruction where we say, this is a word, this is what it means, here are some examples, let's use it, let's practice it. And that's a really valuable thing to do. But there are other kind of strategies that we can do. We can select words that are particularly valuable to prioritize. Um, Beck, McCowan and Kuken's book, Bringing Words to Life, is a really interesting uh, work on this subject and learning about tier two words, academic words that are useful across the curriculum can be um, a really valuable part of this. Um, but also we can teach pupils to analyze words. So we can teach them to... Um, think about chunks of meaning within words. I mentioned morphemes earlier, but we can get them to say, so let's say we're teaching a word like um, unhelpful. If they recognize the, if we teach them that one word and we do it in a, in a powerful way, then yes, they've learned one word. But if we analyze it and we look at the, this morpheme un that suggests negation and this morpheme full, which suggests that a word is turned into an adjective, we, we can then apply that to other unfamiliar words that we might encounter later. So we can teach pupils to be word detectives through analysis of words. And also Latin and Greek root words are particularly valuable for this because of the role they play in written English. Um, so we can think about vocabulary. We can also think about background knowledge. So this is obviously linked to the vocabulary. What you know about the world is tied together with 
what we the words that we can use to describe the world. But there are background knowledge kind of goes a bit beyond that because we can also think about things like the experiences that we have. A pupil that has experienced um, a has been to the coast, for example, will have a different understanding of a text. Um, say a story that is set on the coast if this story talks about the sound of the waves or the smell of the the salty air whatever it might be so background knowledge whether we're reading um stories or information texts or poetry whatever it might be is is fundamental if we're going to read about a thing we the more that we know about that thing the better our understanding will be and it's it, it's not an on or off thing any word, anything, any concept, we can know more and more about it. We can connect it together in our in our schema, our kind of our, our understanding. Um, and as I say, the more you know about the thing, the more that you will grasp it as you read it. The other thing to note about words and background knowledge is that we, it, it's tempting to think of these things as isolated, but of course, words don't work as isolated units. They work by interacting with others. And the way that a sentence is ordered, um, the way that a word is used and presented within that sentence changes its meaning. So pupils also need to understand sentence structure. They need to understand um, things like how clauses work. They need to understand um, the way that different phrases can be used. They need to understand um, metaphors that they may come across and um, idioms that are within the language. So, and also, of course, punctuation, how punctuation contributes to meaning is, is, is essential to learning how to build meaning from words on a page. Equally, they need to understand how different kinds of texts work, because a subheading in an information text works in a slightly different way to a, um, a subheading that, we might appear, that might appear in a newspaper article, whereas one might be giving a, a brief title to summarize what's coming. Another might be a subheading that gives kind of a key phrase or a key couple of words. So understanding the um, conventions that exist relating to different kinds of texts is also another really fundamental element of becoming an expert in building meaning from text and the words in text. I guess the final part of that that's sometimes separated out is what's sometimes called verbal reasoning, and a key part of that being inference, the ability to go beyond the, the literal meaning of words in a text. And um, what I would say, what I would say to this subject is it's often tempting to think of inference and other things like summarizing and predicting as discrete skills that we can teach and that then will then automatically apply to other texts and other contexts. I would say the reality is that all of these skills like summarizing inference pre prediction, well, I say skills, not really discrete skills, but all of these capabilities are absolutely embedded within all of the other elements that I've just described. So inferring is really bringing to bear your knowledge that goes beyond the text to the text and connecting those things together. So it's connected to vocabulary and background knowledge and text structure and sentence structure. So trying to teach it as a discrete skill that will then apply elsewhere probably doesn't make a huge amount of sense when we know a bit more about um, language comprehension. So to sum up, there are lots of these different things. So we've got vocabulary and background knowledge and text structure and sentence structure and verbal reasoning, including inference. And the most 
We can teach all of these things explicitly. I can say, okay, well, let's look at what a subheading does. And we can teach vocabulary explicitly. And I can teach background knowledge explicitly through a broad and balanced curriculum that, that brings um, lots of interesting things for pupils to learn about and gives them fundamental experiences of the world. We can do all that explicitly, but we can also make sure that pupils are learning this stuff through wide and interesting experience with with text. So uh, it, one thing that I think schools sometimes overlook is what texts are we using? Not just in terms of stories, but also in terms of poetry and information texts and biographies. Thinking really carefully about what texts do we think we want pupils to experience and how does that all connect together? So that was a lot. And I, but I what I got Sorry. from that was I didn't hear a worksheet. I hear, didn't hear you advocating for teaching skills in isolation. They're all connected. And I think about, okay, so when we work with students designing a reading instruction or language instruction, we take engaging text and we can teach the vocabulary of that text. We can pull out sentence structures. We can pull out conventions. We can help that text, that engaging text. We can develop students' ability to infer about things that are happening in that text. So it's really saying, um, a house is built of individual bricks, but an individual brick is not a house. Exactly. And, and, and learning what the role of that brick is, is you can like pull out the brick and say, look, this is what it does. It has a certain structure, has a certain composition that gives it strength under, under pressure, etc. But you also need to learn it in the context of an actual house. And so when it comes to supporting people's understanding of reading, I think a good heuristic is to say, okay, if you were working one-to-one -one with a child, maybe your own child, and you want them to understand, you want them to get better at reading, you've taught them how to decode, they're pretty good at recognizing words, what would you do? You, you would sit down with them and you would read and talk about lots of wonderful books. And you'd try and make sure that those books weren't all of one particular kind. You would want to engage them and excite them about reading and you'd want to expose them to as wider understanding of the world as you possibly could and as wider understanding of like the corpus of English literature and uh, English non-fiction texts and English poetry through the choices of those books and the same thing applies when we're teaching a class. So another personal note when my sister was pregnant twice with her, her, her children my nieces I always told them, I always told her to like, please just read books with your daughters, like just mm -hmm. spend time reading with them. And like miraculously, they are two years above their reading level, right? And that's yeah. because of, they just read a wide variety of books. She talked about vocabulary words that came up. It wasn't a, it wasn't like a lesson of that text. It was just fun engagement with text. And reading became a fun thing. And so like when I look at them over the summer, they just, when we give them books, any book that they've chosen, they just sit for hours and just love, love that time. So you're, I think that's part of what you talked about as enhancing reading and making meaning, reading um, engaging. Let's talk about actually that part, part four. How do we enhance reading? So we have the, those elements of reading. How do we enhance it? So on a kind of quite technical level, there are certain aspects of literacy that feed into reading and support it. And spelling is a really good example of this. You know, going way back to what we talked about earlier, 
any good phonics program must include lots of spelling, lots of encoding. If we want pupils to build um, deeply embedded uh, representations of how words are spelled in order to recognize them, spelling them themselves is a really useful thing to do. So teaching spelling is hugely valuable, not just at the start of instruction, throughout pupils' um, education. So we can also bring back these ideas, as I mentioned earlier, of morphology. So looking at chunks of meaning within words, the study of those, so morphemes, when I talked about unhelpful, we can think about that in terms of spelling instruction and the role that morphology plays in spelling instruction. We might even bring in a little bit of etymology as well, just to you know uh, bring a bit, a bit of uh, intrigue and interest and curiosity to the subject. But teaching spelling is a really wonderful way to support reading outcomes and of course, in itself, writing and spelling outcomes. Equally, taking opportunities to uh, bring reading and writing instruction together, I think is a really wonderful thing. Some of the best writing that I've seen pupils do in my time as a teacher has been in response to wonderful texts that they've read. So taking opportunities to bring these two things together can be a really um, valuable thing to do. And often when we're teaching writing, we are teaching a lot of the things that I mentioned earlier. We're teaching sentence structure. We're teaching them about how texts are structured. So you can see how, of course, reading and writing have this um, lovely kind of self-reinforcing uh, relationship. I'd say another thing is, as I mentioned before, you have to think about the development of reading for pleasure and independent reading wherever you can. Now, not every student is going to love reading independently. Not every student is going to go home. I mean, that's the target, that's the aim, that's the ideal. But um, what we need to do is try and maximize that as much as we possibly can. At the heart of it is competence. I've worked with lots of struggling readers and for most of them, you could not pay them to read independently until they were relatively competent as readers, until they until they can do it and feel quite successful in doing it, reading is, is always going to be something that they are somewhat reluctant to do. But this also feeds into this idea of the importance of um, reading to pupils, showing them that there is value in it, that it is something that's going to enrich their lives, something that they might deeply enjoy given half the chance, because some parts of reading instruction are going to be tricky for kids and it is going to be something that they have to actually feel like they're just, oh, it's just a bit of work. And seeing the end goal and associating reading with positive things, particularly in loving relationships in the family and with friends, is something that kind of carries that along, that says, look, I know this is hard work at the moment, but look at what this is going to lead to. Look at what you're going to be able to do. So yeah, developing reading for pleasure is really valuable. There are lots of little tips and tricks that you can do to support reading for pleasure from um, recommending books to pupils, making sure that the books they read reflect their own lives, as well as showing them exciting and interesting things that go beyond their own experiences. Um, but yeah, there are there are so many things that you can do. Uh, you make making sure that nonfiction is available. Lots of pupils fall in love with reading through nonfiction rather than stories. Um, and making sure that uh, we prioritise those texts within our curriculum and within our classrooms and within our school libraries is a really valuable thing as well. Is that what you mean by a reading diet? Partly. Um, yeah, it's absolutely a key part of the reading diet. In my book, when I start to talk about a 
and a reading diet more generally. I'm thinking about what you talked about earlier about kind of what does instruction look like? What are the what are the principles that make for um, a balanced and, and a valuable, um, a worthwhile reading diet? Because <clears throat> in those terms, we can start to think about what things need to be there. And what I, what I mean by that is, when we talk about a balanced diet, we don't say you must eat broccoli or that you must eat X, Y, and Z. But what we do talk about is, well, you what has to be there is a certain amount of carbohydrate, a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of vitamins, vitamins and minerals. These things need to be there. Now, how you get them into your system in good uh, and sensible quantities is open to a little bit of interpretation, but there is this fundamental set of things that need to be there if we're going to support reading development. So when I'm talking about the reading develop, uh, reading diet, I'm thinking about making sure that there's a certain amount of text experience, that there's a certain amount of rich discussion, that at the very beginning of instruction, that there is um, explicit teaching of decoding, uh, making sure that reading for pleasure is accounted for, making sure that pupils hear wonderful books modeled beautifully, read aloud by um, an adult in the classroom. All of that stuff is kind of the reading diet. Now, how exactly a school puts that into practice? Well, research doesn't speak to that precisely. And there is, and this is why we talk about principles rather than diktats of certain ways that you must do things. One of your last chapters is about opportunities to support uh, reading difficulties like dyslexia. Do you, can you give a two minute talk about that? Yeah, sure, I can. Um, it's something that's incredibly important to me from my experience. I think one of the most important jobs we do in schools is supporting pupils who are going, who struggle to learn to read more than others. Now, dyslexia has, it's hard to put, put pin down an agreed upon definition, but when you look at the ones that are there from people like the International Dyslexia Association or British um, Dyslexia Association, etc., the commonalities there are that Dyslexia can be defined as difficulties in learning to recognize words and to spell words. And the, the research strongly suggests that teaching pupils explicitly to recognize and spell words through things like phonics, through the development of reading fluency, etc., in all the ways that I've talked about for students that don't struggle quite so much, is still equally beneficial. What might be different for those pupils in terms of supporting and reading difficulties is that you might need to think more carefully about their motivation, about the amount of time that is required to learn certain things, about the intensity of support that's required for them. That kind of personalization is really important while at the same time recognizing that the in, in qualitative terms, the support that we give to those pupils is likely to look very similar to the support that we give to everyone else, but in quantitative terms and in terms of motivation might look uh, slightly different. Well, Chris, this is the last question I'm gonna pose to you. This has been, has been a really wonderful, rich conversation. You have really um, taken the research, applied it to really real situations, and you talked about it with such clarity that like something that's quite difficult and complex as reading is now uh, more accessible to listeners and to me in particular. So thank you for that. Let me ask you a question about, you, you go to keynotes and you're often keynotes, uh, you're, you're often a keynote. What 
from your keynote, do you wish people uh, would shift in their mind about reading? Like, they, they would come to your keynote and this is what they used to think. But you hope that they now think about reading in this way. What is that shift? Um, that's a really wonderful question. The, it's hard not to base that in quite the terms of English schools, because there are certain things that I'd want all school, uh, all teachers in English schools to, to think a bit more deeply about. Um, but in, in, in the most general terms, I would say there are, there are a couple of things. The first is think about the quantitative aspects of reading instruction. Don't just think about how well it looks like your teachers are teaching reading. Think about how much reading your pupils are doing in their lessons. So that'd be the first thing. The second thing I'd really want them to take away is to think about the actual content of their reading curriculum. Don't think about it in just in terms of the skills that you want children to pick up in terms of reading comprehension. Think about what do you want them to learn from the, the books that you are um, that they are engaging with? What do you want them to learn about English literature? What do you want them to learn about um, and by English literature, I mean literature in the English language. So not just not just books written by English people. I've had that that comes up in keynotes sometimes. Um, so think about the, the the texts that are involved, and think about the richness of the experiences that you want children to have with those texts. Those would be the two key things. As I listen to this podcast, I'm like, wow, he's really young, but he's so eloquent and professional and clear in what he's saying. So I think you're going to have a really healthy and successful career in the future of advocating uh, for a new paradigm of reading. And you're already doing that with your uh, statewide, uh, sorry, like at the, at the nation level, national level of supporting uh, new teachers. So Chris, I know that when, teach, when someone will say, I need a book about reading instruction, I will say, go look at Chris's book. That's well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. And it's been a real pleasure to come on your podcast. Thanks again. Thank you. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called long-term success for experienced multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. Chris Such kept talking about the disconnection between what we do as competent readers and how it is different than what beginning readers do. When we read and decode text, we don't feel like we're decoding text because over time, it becomes automatic to us. Yet students actually need these decoding skills to be able to read. I think this is the main reason why this contention in the community. What we feel like we do naturally as competent readers do not come naturally to beginning readers in any language. This means we have to explicitly teach the not so fun part of phonics and decoding. But fortunately, Chris talked about the other elements of reading comprehension that develop lifelong learners. Many of these things are what we're already doing to teach English. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 
Yeah.